0: Good morning, Nashville. This is the 440 for Wednesday, September 23rd. It is finally game week in the SEC. Where else did you think I was going to start this podcast? Of course I'm talking about the SEC. And teams are naming starting quarterbacks left and right. Alabama has named Junior Mac Jones the starter as the post-Tua era begins in Tuscaloosa. All Jones did in place of an injured Tua to finish the season last year was throw for 300 yards in back-to-back starts against Auburn on the road and against Michigan in the bowl game. Now he gets to play behind what is likely the best offensive line in America with what is likely the best running game in America and probably the best set of receivers in America. Our collective bleeding hearts go out to you, the new Alabama starting quarterback. Godspeed. LSU officially named Miles Brennan the starter in Baton Rouge, replacing Heisman Trophy quarterback Joe Burrow under center. He has far less experience. Far fewer returning pieces around him has lost the architect of his offense in Joe Brady and is under as much pressure to replace a legend as his counterpart at Alabama. The 6-foot-4 redshirt junior has attempted 70 total passes in his 3 years as a Tiger, which is almost as many touchdown passes as Joe Burrow had last season. Georgia has decided not to announce who they will start at quarterback as is tradition. JT Daniels, the USC transfer who tore his ACL in the first game of last season, had to have some follow-up surgery in December to clean up his repaired knee, and that has opened up the door for redshirt freshman DeWan Mathis to get some reps in camp. The key here for this decision is really about what Kirby Smart and new offensive coordinator Todd Munkin want from their retooled offense in 2020. Mathis gives the dogs far more versatility at the position with his ability to move around, which is what Munkin was brought to Athens to do. But a healthy Daniels might simply be too good of a passer to keep off the field, even if it means the offense fails to evolve with him under center. This is arguably the biggest position battle in the entire SEC, and the right choice could get Georgia and Kirby Smart into the playoff. The wrong one could cost them the division, so no pressure, fellas. Jarrett Garantana will be the starting quarterback when the Vols head down to South Carolina to open the season this weekend. The veteran signal caller has had a precarious relationship with fans, but seems like the obvious choice considering his statistical production and experience level relative to the other options as well as some health issues on the depth chart. It certainly doesn't mean that the decision is final as we've seen head coach Jeremy Pruitt go to his backup in what feels like almost every game of the season last year. But a second full year in Jim Chaney's system, an improved offensive line, and added maturity should ideally help Garantano post what should be the best season of his career. Should that happen, the Vols might actually be able to challenge Florida or Georgia in the East. If it doesn't, well, I would say stay off Twitter, Jarrett. Just my advice. As a reminder, last weekend, South Carolina head coach Will Muschamp surprisingly named Colorado State transfer Colin Hill as the Gamecock starter over incumbent Ryan Holinsky for the game against Tennessee on Saturday evening. Lane Kiffin has said that both Matt Corral and John Rice Plumlee will play this week for Ole Miss as Kiffy makes his SEC head coaching return this weekend against the Florida Gators. Both Plumlee, who ran for 1,000 yards last season, and Corral have excellent athletic ability, but that isn't necessarily what Kiffin wants out of his quarterback, so this will be a fascinating race to watch as the season unfolds. And starting against one of the best defenses in the SEC this weekend doesn't make anything any easier for Lane. Finally, Vanderbilt will open the year on the road against number 10 Texas A&M after a four-man quarterback battle. Derek Mason said on Tuesday that he's narrowed it down to two privately and has settled on a starter but will not tell anybody. True freshman and early enrollee Ken Seals figures to be the leader for the job, while junior college transfer Danny Clark, who originally signed with Kentucky, might be the first name off the bench if needed. So what does this all mean? Well, it means that the SEC is replacing a ton of star power, at the quarterback position, and these already huge decisions are going to be even bigger in what is already a very interesting and very bizarre shortened season. Good luck, gentlemen. Game on. The Tennessee Titans began selling tickets this week to their football games, which is cool. If you did not know, the Titans are going to allow 10% capacity, roughly 7,000 fans, beginning in week four when the Pittsburgh Steelers come to town. That number is expected to increase as the season goes along, targeting 12.5% for the October 11th game against the Bills and 15% for the October 18th game against the Texans. The goal is to get roughly 15,000 fans per game into the stadium, or roughly 20% capacity by the end of the year. However, to whom those tickets are being sold has created some controversy this week. According to PaulKaharski.com, the Titans are using a range of factors to decide who gets to purchase tickets and in what order, seat location and tenure being the two biggest variables. However, as season ticket holders have been given what amounts to their spot in line to buy tickets this week, fans are beginning to see a pattern that seat location, aka cost, is the driving force behind that order rather than how long you've been a season ticket holder. This is a business, and making money is king. There's no question. Generating large chunks of revenue is limited during a pandemic with only 10% of your inventory available to sell. I get it. Some people are always going to get screwed in this process, regardless of what the Titans did. So while it's understandable that seat location is the primary deciding factor, I still don't have to like it. And many longtime upper-deck season ticket holders probably agree with me right now. It's not an easy equation to solve. you got all these different people in different seats with different costs asking for different amounts of tickets... I get it. It's a tough situation. But solving tough situations is part of the job for people who work in a billion-dollar industry. In my opinion, as someone who has no financial stake in the Tennessee Titans generating revenue whatsoever, it seems like this would be a killer opportunity to show your fans how much you really appreciate them. Someone who has been a season ticket holder for 20 years but happens to sit in the upper deck in Section 303 should be given a better chance to buy tickets than someone who just moved into town last fall and happens to have a boatload of cash to buy the best seats in the house. It does not appear, however, that this is what the Titans are doing. During a tough year, this seems like it could be a fantastic opportunity for a team that at times hasn't always been super fan-friendly to show that the new, more community-centric, fan-aware Tennessee Titans are a real thing. Or maybe I'm just naive and cash is still king. In other scheduling and ticketing news, Nashville SC announced on Tuesday that four of the remaining nine regular season matches will take place at Nissan Stadium and that fans are back. Just like with the Titans games, Nashville SC supporters will be eased gradually back into the stadium. Up to 10% of Nashville SC first-string MLS founding members will be the first ones allowed to attend on Tuesday, October 6th against Minnesota United FC. Then the three following matches in October against FC Dallas on the 20th, New England on the 24th, and the Chicago Fire on Halloween will be capped at 15% capacity. As with the Titans games, protocols are pretty common sense. Socially distanced seating pods, mobile everything, mandatory face coverings at all times, individually wrapped food, no smoking or vaping, health screenings for employees, and comprehensive cleaning plans. All part of the process. Two things stand out to me about the gradual return of fans to Nissan Stadium. Number one, I honestly hope that Nashville SC can sell 15% of the building. The 59,000 people that attended the first game 100 years ago back in February, it was amazing. It was an historic evening of soccer in Music City. There is no doubt about it. But after months off, I think it's fair to wonder what Nashville SC ticket demand will look like. With the team playing pretty decent soccer and fighting for a playoff spot, I would hope that enough fans show up to make it feel like a real match again. I hope. Which brings me to number two. Why in the hell did it take so long for fans to be allowed back inside of a massive open-air cathedral like Nissan Stadium? Now, I am your basic Corona bro, so me and my wife aren't going to any games anytime soon for personal reasons, but if people have been allowed back into bars grinding on John Deere tractors since the modified phase two reopening back in mid-August, why has it taken so long for a ginormous outdoor building to figure out how to host people? I am sure that entry and exit points as well as restrooms and concessions were tricky to solve, but sitting outside at a stadium feels far less risky than going to almost any downtown bar right now. But hey, I'm not a doctor. This has been The 440 for Wednesday, September 23rd. The 440 is a production of 440 Media LLC. Written and produced by Braden Gall. Music by William Tyler.